Our scripture reading this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 and verse 25. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. This is God's word. So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the precious name, name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy New Year to you, beloved congregation. I'm, I feel a great privilege to worship with you on the second Lord's Day of 2022, and we will have a New Year's emphasis. I know that I could bring a New Year's message with greater justification on the first Sunday of the New Year, but um, since we're still within 10 days of uh, New Year's Day, I, I hope it'll be okay. So Joel chapter two, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna offer an expository sermon. And one of the bedrock foundations of this church is expository preaching. I'm pretty sure, I can't speak officially, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that would be a minimum requirement for your next senior pastor. And, and I hope it is. Expository preaching began to go out of vogue with the advent of the megachurches in the mid to late 70s. And I think that's a sad thing. I think there's a place for topical preaching or other kinds of preaching, just like I think there's a place for popcorn and Snickers bars, but a steady diet won't, of that won't help you. And a steady diet away from expository preaching, I don't think is a healthy thing for most churches. But it would take four to six opportunities to bring some expository clarity to, to, um, Joel, to Joel. And, and what expository preaching means, it, it means consecutive preaching, that you go through books of the Bible. It means contextual preaching, that you don't leap out of the context like I'm going to do today as, a, as an exception. Uh, and it means contained preaching. It means that, that you take the points of the message from obvious points in the text. 
and that kind of preaching has fed the church, the Western church, for a long time. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a thing we're going to depart from this morning because I want to, I want to spring from Joel and I want to bring a New Year's message, which I hope will be an encouragement. I can't guarantee it. I can't even guarantee that everybody in this room is conscious of a need for encouragement. If you're not conscious of a need for encouragement, then I want you to write a book about why you're not and share it with the rest of us. And I want you, if you don't feel any need for encouragement, I want you to ask God to give you a gift of empathy. Because even if there's no reason for you to weep, um, we need to learn how to weep with those who weep. And, and a joyful platform is, is not a bad platform to weep with people who weep. So uh, springing from Joel 2, I want to first uh, extract the promise. And first I want to see if we can even claim this great promise in verse 25, Joel 2, 25. So I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust have eaten. Now I have to confess, and this is not a cool thing to confess, it, it, it really signals, I guess, a, a kind of defeat, and Christians aren't supposed to live in defeat, but I've reached the age, and I've actually been here for some years, where New Year's is not really a time of great resolve for me. I've kind of given up on that, you know, yearly time for uh, multiple resolutions. And to be honest, this is, this is the hard thing to confess. It's usually a time of regret. As I look back, not just on the past year, but on past years and think of the things that I regret. And I'll tell you, in my case, it's about 99% things that I said that I shouldn't have said. And this year has been especially acute in that concentrated regret. But there's a promise in Joel too that God would restore to us the things that we've lost, the lost years, the lost opportunities, the things that shouldn't have happened that did happen. Some way he's gonna make that up to us, the things that uh, should have happened that didn't happen, those lost opportunities. There's, there's going to be a season of consolation and, and compensation. But the first thing I, I have to ask is, are we going to, um, do we have a right to claim that promise? Because sometimes we extract promises from scripture. Uh, there's a promise, I'm sorry, I didn't look it up. I think it's in Haggai 1, but there was a vogue um, in, in my student days from a verse in Haggai, I think it's Haggai 1, that says, look, I'm, go I'm gonna do something in your day that it's gonna make your, your ears tingle. It's, it's gonna be something amazing. And, and I can actually remember the, the uh, Christian worker's name. I'm still in touch with her. She married a close friend of mine who was claiming that verse. And, and that verse is God threatening great judgment. <laughs> I'm going to bring great judgment. You're going to be amazed at how great this judgment is. So it's a little bit dangerous, you know, to, to jerk these, these verses out, out of context. And we have to ask the question, this is a verse deep in the Old Testament. Uh, Warren Wearsby suggests that Joel may have been the first writing prophet. We usually uh, associate these great um, 
um, prophetic texts with the 8th century. But uh, Joel probably began to prophesy in the 9th century B.C., the very end of the 9th century. And uh, what should that have to do with us? Well, one thing it has to do with us is that Peter quotes from Joel 2 in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. So it does have application in the life of the believer, not so much the verses we're, we're looking at. But remember I said in the life of the believer. So let's try to settle that now, shall we? We, uh, we can't settle it any earlier than now, can we? When I came to First Event in 1994, my testimony was that I got saved as a child, like these some of these precious children and some older new believers as well. And uh, I, I, I held tenaciously to that. And usually when I would give my testimony, because I did grow up in a Christian home, I would say something like this. Now, I wandered from the Lord in my teenage years, from about age 15 to 20. And if you had known me during those years, there's no way you would have thought from the outside that I was a Christian. But I know I was a Christian because I remember the experience from the inside. And you know what, as time went on, that narrative was failing me. It was no longer working. One reason it wasn't working is because I started remembering certain sins, not the normal sins we associate with the 60s. I was born in 1950. So my teen years tracked the 60s. It was an egregious time in terms of bad behavior. But it wasn't so much those sins. There were other sins. I'm too ashamed to mention them. Please don't make me mention them. And more and more, I, I was coming to the conclusion, you didn't come back to the Lord at age 20. You came to the Lord at age 20. And as that conviction deepened, I thought, well, you know what? I, I actually believe in believer's baptism. Now, some of you don't, and that's fine, and I'm not beating the uh, drum for that today, but that's always been my conviction. So I realized, well, you know what? If this new, fresh narrative is accurate, then I wasn't saved when I got baptized. And so one evening, uh, in an evening service, I was actually doing what Andrew Beach just did, and I was baptizing some people. And then, no announcement, no fanfare, no explanation. I called our executive pastor, who used to be our senior minister, Jay Letty, down in the pool, and he baptized me. I'm not sure I ever explained it publicly. Now, here's what I would like to, to tell you. And I'm not suggesting that one person in this room has the same experience. I'm just telling you what my experience was. Why did I come to that conclusion that I wasn't saved? Three things. Number one, there was no restraint before sin. Number two, there was no regret after sin. Number three, there was no resolve never to sin again. Okay? And sometime in the summer of 1971, over 50 years ago, all that changed. And let me tell you something. It wasn't a slight change. I became unrecognizable from my former life. 
Now, I want you to know that that new testimony was challenged by some pretty high-powered people. There's, there was a great, old, five years older than me, missionary in the places where I've been missionary, pretty, pretty well-known and pretty... Um, he had the same degree from Dallas Seminary I have, but he, he went on for a doctorate. I, 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 I'm not even a veterinarian. And, I, and, and, and so, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, you know what, uh, you're wrong. You, you, you know, we go through these phases in our life where we, we come closer to the Lord and we learn new things about the Lord. And, uh, and we think, well, golly, I, I would, probably wasn't even saved before. And I thought, you're right. And I'm, I've been through that phase and conviction, but it wasn't working for me anymore. You know, God did something very special, though. After my mother died in January 2014, we were cleaning out her condominium. Well, um, Jane was doing most of the work. And Jane, Jane came across a letter that I had written when I was a first quarter freshman. We had quarters in those days. And it was a letter that I was wrote to my parents, but mainly to my father, telling him why I couldn't um, be a part of the family business and why I was not going to major in business. And, and the reason that I gave him was that I was going to go in the ministry. And you might think, oh, well, then, then you, you did have evidence that you became a Christian before. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. I bless God for giving me documentary proof that I could not possibly have been a Christian at that time. That letter was absolutely written by an unbeliever. It was me, me, me. There was none of Jesus in it. And let me, let me also say something else so I can say it without tears. You know how emotional I get. Um, that letter was so painful, I still haven't read all of it. I couldn't finish it. So I said all that to say this. The promise is yours if you're a believer. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I'm not trying to shake anybody's assurance. I'm just telling you what happened to me. And it's dangerous to claim a promise that wasn't meant for people who are not born again. That's all. But it is a promise for us. The great Spurgeon, whom you know that I revere, he said, now look, we know we can't get time back. We know it doesn't mean, it doesn't say that the locusts ate the years. What it really means is that the locusts ate the fruit of the years. Well, I think Spurgeon was wrong, and you may never hear me say that again for the rest of your lives. <laughs> because the text clearly says that he'll restore the years that the locusts ate. But we understand where Spurgeon is coming from. I have a very vivid memory of holding my son in my arms in 1986, walking out of our house in a Munich suburb, and he had a helium balloon. And he was so thrilled about that balloon. And me, negligent father that I was, I didn't have the string secured under my arm. And we went, when we went outdoors, first, of course, the first thing he did is he let that string go. And about the time it was at the treetops, he began to wail. And he wanted his father to get that balloon back. And there was nothing I could do. There was absolutely nothing I could do. It was irretrievable. It was irrecoverable. And for you and I, the years are like that, but not to God. 
and we look at a relationship that maybe we wish had happened or we wish, look at a relationship that we wish didn't happen or we look at, a, at an error we made, maybe in raising a child, maybe in making a, a choice on where to go to school or a choice is not go to class or all kinds of things. Could be uh, the, the moral anarchy that some of us live through that brings so much sorrow to our reflections. And we say, it's too late, it's too late. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Is that a miracle? Of course it's a miracle. But God is not only Lord over matter. He can't merely, he doesn't merely alter matter in a way that's inconceivable to a rationalist. But he's also Lord over time. And he can do things with time that you and I can never imagine. You think of Moses who didn't make it into the promised land. Think how grievous that was, but think how it proves the truth of scripture that this great hero is um, debarred from the place where he's leading a whole nation. You keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. Read through the New Testament. God is not limited to the three score and 10 years of your biological life to bless you even to bless you in ways you wanted to be blessed in that biological life. Because when you get to Matthew 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration, who's standing there? It's Moses. Where is he? He's in the promised land. Who knows what completions and compensations may await the blessed of the Lord? This promise is for us and all our children who believe. So don't be drowned in Regret, be fortified in hope and spend much time in the promises. So the next thing I want to do is I want to understand a principle. And the principle is this. Nothing is lost for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can be permanently lost. Death itself is rendered a temporary difficulty, never a permanent tragedy for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to spend a little time on the next point. I want us to actually um, see the pattern of how this works out a pattern of how it works out in the Old Testament. And I, I had a great privilege and I had a great time spending some time with the first of Anne's Sunday school class. And, and I said to Jane this morning, I said, did, did I think, did I talk about this? She said, I can't remember. And I said, I can't remember either. And the only thing I can hope is that if I did, they won't remember, okay? <laughs> so, uh, because I, I have in, in another context, in another room, in another place, I, I dwelt on this a little while, but it's, it's something that I, I really can't get out of my head. And here it is. How do we know what we know about Jesus? Well, we know because four men told us. We do get a little scrap here and there. Uh, in, in other places in, in the Bible. We know, for instance, we know from the prophecies. But mainly, and we, we know from, for instance, Galatians 4.4, 4, which is a Christmas verse. 
Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, which are Christian, which are Christmas verses. I won't go over them. But mainly we know because of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote. And I want to talk a minute about Mark, the most neglected of the Gospels. And even though there's a growing uh, group of scholars who are suggesting that maybe Matthew was written first, the broad consensus for 150 years is that Mark was the first gospel written. And uh, it's the shortest gospel. I started thinking about this when I was reflecting on the fact that Mark tells us absolutely nothing about Christmas. Matthew, Luke, and John make distinctive contributions. Mark tells us nothing, zero, zip. But Mark does tell us some things that the other gospel writers does not tell, do not tell us. For instance, he tells us about the nicknames that Jesus gave to James and John, Boanerges, sons of thunder. He gives us the best succinct definition of discipleship and which highlights the difference between discipleship and apostleship, Mark 3.14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that's discipleship, and that they might go out to preach, that's apostleship. But he also tells us something else. When Mary of Bethany anointed the Lord's feet after the raising of Lazarus, when we're only a few days from the cross, you remember Judas objected and Jesus said, let her alone. She's anointing my body for burial. We won't go into everything that that means. But Mark tells us something that the Lord said that nobody else tells us. Jesus in that moment said, this is Mark 14, 8, about Mary. She did what she could. She did what she could. Now I'm going to come back to that. Do you know there was something in Mark's life that could have disqualified him? And do you know that actually it did disqualify him from going on the second missionary journey? He went on a second missionary journey, but he didn't go with Paul because Paul disqualified him. In Acts 13, on the first missionary journey, Mark bailed. He quit before it was over. And at the end of chapter 15, when they're getting ready to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, I can imagine the conversation, says to Paul, says, well, I think we got most of what we need. Mark's ready. He's all packed. And Paul says, Mark's not going. And Barnabas says, what do you mean he's not going? He said, well, he's not going. Well, why isn't he going? Well, he quit on the first missionary journey. He's not going on this one. And I can just hear Barnabas saying it. You know, Paul, you talk a good game of grace. You talk a really good game of grace. But when it comes to actually applying it, you're not so good at that, are you? And I can hear Paul saying, I'm not saying he's going to hell. I'm saying that choices have consequences. And one consequence of this bad choice is he's not going this time. And you know, I think the thing that would have burdened me if I had been John Mark would not be the fact that I didn't go, get to go with Paul on the second journey. It would be that I busted up the partnership of Paul and Barnabas. Think about that. Think about carrying that burden around with you for the rest of your life. They split up. One of the most shocking phenomena that we find in the book of Acts. And Barnabas took Mark and they went off to Cyprus. Paul took Silas. He went back to Asia Minor. They picked up 
Timothy and Lystra, and then they picked up Luke after the Macedonian call. And we could talk about that for a long time. We could talk about the fact that so many very godly scholars, and I'm not a scholar at all, uh, believe that Barnabas was right. I think Paul was right, but I won't defend it. But later, Paul summons Mark and talks about how useful he is. I think he's useful because Paul threw him off the team. I think he's useful because Paul taught him something that he needed to learn. But here's the thing. Think of the burden. And think of the possibility that you think, now, I'm not usable to the Lord. I've blown it. I'll never get that chance again. And I blew it. So what happened? Well, he wrote the first gospel. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's a pretty monumental reinstatement for somebody who blew it. Now, what I want to do at the same time is I want to make the practical application. What did he do that we can do? He did what he could. You and I can't go back and make up every situation that we blew, that we ruined, where we failed. But there are still things to do. And we do what we can. We don't let those past errors and sins paralyze us for any future possibility to serve the Lord. It probably won't be something as monumental as writing one of the Gospels. But it will be something. And it can be something. Well, what about Matthew? We know all kinds of things uh, about Christmas that Matthew tells us that nobody else tells us. He's the only one who tells us about the Magi. He's the only one who gives us Joseph's perspective. He's the only one who tells us about the star. He's the only one who tells us about the flight, the flight to Egypt. He's the only one who tells us about the slaughter of the innocents. Matthew, unlike Mark, didn't just blow something once. He blew something for a long time. You do know, don't you, that the Jews, most Jews of the first century, hated the Gentiles. But they hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles. But there was a group of people that they hated far more than they hated the Samaritans. You know, the Gent we Gentiles, we can't help that we're Gentiles. The Samaritans couldn't help that they were Gentiles. But the tax collectors, they could have helped it. But they sold their country out for money because most tax collectors extorted payment above what Rome required to line their own pockets. The Jews loathed tax collectors. Now, my friends, this serves as one of the greatest apologetics in all of history. You know, what an apologetic is something different from an apology. Taken from the same Greek root, but it doesn't mean an apology. An apologetic is a defense, a strong, vigorous defense in the offering of evidence. So you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world? Well, you're the one who needs to apologize because you're discarding and throwing massive evidence behind you. You're covering your eyes and ignoring the evidence. Now, can you imagine, listen, if these things didn't happen, then they were a product of a conspiracy. And can you imagine a conspiratorial 
claim. Can you imagine the conspirators caucusing and deciding now, how are we going to pull this off? Well, hey, Matthew, you've got great credibility. Why don't you write the gospel to the Jews? You're a tax collector. You see how manifestly absurd that theory is. It's absolutely impossible that such, of a th- such a thing could have happened. Well, how did it happen? Same way you and I got saved, an election of grace. It happened because Jesus decided it would happen. It happened because one day in Matthew 9, Jesus walks up to Matthew in his tax office and he says, follow me. And that following didn't end until this man wrote 28 chapters of the first gospel in the arrangement of our canonical gospels. Now, you know what? We may not have just blown it once like John Mark did by bailing from a commitment that we made. We may have blown it for years. <laughs> we may have blown it for decades. And it may be, it may have left a stigma in the eyes of some, which is indelible. Does that mean there's nothing to do? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. You're not disqualified from following me. You follow me. And we'll see where it leads. So we do what we can. And we follow Jesus. Now what about Luke? Think of the circumstances that would have dissuaded Luke from writing his gospel. It had already been done. It had already been done twice. It already been done twice perfectly. It it already been done twice perfectly by two men who actually knew the Lord Jesus personally. Why on earth should he do it again? You know, most, um, most Christians, if you ask them who wrote most of the New Testament, they would say Paul, and that would be wrong. Paul wrote most of the books of the New Testament. But unless you count Hebrews, which I don't, and most real scholars don't, they used to, they don't anymore. Luke wrote more words in Luke and Acts than Paul wrote in his 13 epistles. Isn't that amazing? And if Luke had said, look, it's already been done, it's been done twice, it's been done perfectly, it's been done by people who actually knew the Lord, they met him, they touched him, they talked to him, they watched him. I can't claim that. What do I have to offer? If Luke had caved to that mindset, then you and I wouldn't know what the phrase Good Samaritan means. We wouldn't know what the phrase prodigal son means. And speaking of Christmas, we wouldn't know anything about the manger or the swaddling clothes or the angels over Bethlehem and the shepherds. You know, Nancy Lee Moss has just written a book called The Five, no, I think it's just called The Hymns of Christmas. And I think she cites five hymns. We owe all of that to Luke. The other gospel writers don't talk about the Benedictus of Zechariah and the Magnificat of Mary, 
and the glory and excelsis Deo of the angels, and the nuke dimittis, now let thy servant depart of Simeon. Only Luke gives us that. We wouldn't have any of that if Luke had been discouraged. So what's the practical takeaway? And why was Luke moved to go ahead and write a third gospel? Well, you see, there was this one guy, this one guy named Theophilus, this one person that he, that he cared about. Bible teachers debate over whether he was a Christian or not. I think he wasn't quite a Christian. He may have been. I think he was almost there, but not quite there. And Luke was trying to get him there. So it wasn't uh, only discipleship. I think it was evangelization. When you read the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you will see, you actually see it in the first verse of Acts, you'll see this man's name, Theophilus. What's our takeaway? Well, we got lots of disadvantages. We, we, may, we may have looked on somebody else doing discipleship or evangelism. Boy, I, I treasure my memory of people in this church who had a gift of evangelism. Uh, Tori Sandlin and Bob Ritter and Garland Tackett. I think probably Chubby and Mary Ann also had gifts of evangelism. And you know what? I don't have it. I have a burden for evangelism. And I want to be faithful, but I don't have a gift like they do. But, you know, he thought, well, there's one person I can help. One person. And what you and I can do is we can find one person who knows less than we do. And it may take some of us longer than, to find that person than, than others. But there's one person out there that we have favor with who would listen to us. Either they don't know the Lord yet or they're in an infantile stage in their discipleship. And we latch on to that person. And we commit ourselves to just one person. This is not grandiose. Just one person. Jane and I went to something in um, the fall of 1983 in um, Colorado Springs at Glen Airy, the Navigator's disciple-making in the 80s. Chuck Swindoll, Ray Stedman, uh, Leroy Imes, and Howard Hendricks. Unbelievable. And I latched on to uh, Leroy Imes, told him about the church I pastored in North Carolina, and said, what should I do? Because, I mean, he, he was deputy director of the Navigators. They got plans for discipleship. He said, you should disciple one person. I was absolutely shocked. Well, that's what Luke did. And what came of it? And there's one more. You know, John only gives us one verse about Christmas. Did you know that? He gives us a lot that the so-called synoptic writers don't give us. But he only gives us one verse about Christmas, and it's the theology of the incarnation. What was the incarnation theologically? Well, it was this, the Logos, the Word, became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, what were his disadvantages? Well, just this, he was an ignorant bumpkin when he met Jesus. That's what the academic elite of Israel called him and Peter in Acts 4.13. These men are 
agromatoi kai idiotai. They're ignorant and unlearned. They got no business teaching anybody. They haven't been to the right schools. And we may disqualify ourselves because we don't have the proper training. Maybe we've got a different kind of training. Maybe we don't have any training. Moody didn't have any training. I could talk about that for a long time. The case of Moody. And so, how did we get the theological prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, the only gospel that gives us a prologue, which includes the purest theology written in the history of the world. If you take God away as the subject, it looks like pure philosophy. How did he do that? He was a manual worker. He worked all night. He worked the third shift. He worked outside. You could tell the kind of job he did by the smell of his hands. He handled fish. How on earth could he say in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God? He was in the beginning with God. All things which have come into being came into being through him and apart from him nothing has come into being which has come into being. In him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. He comprehended it though and he taught us to comprehend it. Where did he get those credentials? Well, I've said this 30 times from this room. There were concentric circles of intimacy around the Lord Jesus Christ. There were the multitudes. There were the 70. There were the 12. There were the three, Peter, James, and John. And there was the one. There was the one who put his head right here, right here on Jesus Here's what I suggest. I suggest that we battle regret by soaking ourselves in the promises and believing them. Believing that one proof of the omnipotence of, omnipotence of God is that he could use wretches like us. Maybe we blew it in a critical moment. Maybe we blew it continually for decades. Maybe we're not very well trained. Maybe we can't keep comparing ourselves. Do you know that there was a man called Andrew A. Bonar? Jane called his diary in life the most spiritual book she'd ever read, and I would agree. And one of the sad things that shines through, he was a giant in the 19th century. His dates are 1810, 1892. He died the same year that Spurgeon died. But one of the sad subtexts of this book is that he always compared himself to Robert Murray McShane, who was his best friend. McShane died at age 29. Bonar lived to be 82. And McShane was the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland and a great soul winner. And Bonar thought he was a failure. He wasn't a failure, he was a giant of the faith. He wrote a commentary on Leviticus of all things that's still in print. Amazing. 
Do you know that C.S. Lewis, when given an excuse for a woman 26 years older that he had taken care of from 1919 to her death in 1951, you know, she was an atheist. Imagine living in the same house with C.S. Lewis and being an atheist. She was also a minister's daughter. And Lewis, in a letter to a friend, wrote to her and said, well, you know, I, I don't know what kind of indulgences there are for people who've never heard, but in her entire life, she never had a clear Christian witness. And I thought, are you drunk? She lived with the greatest apologist of the 20th century. But Lewis thought he was a failure. He thought a he had a very, very, very low opinion of who he was as a Christian. I read four books over a thousand pages, not counting scripture. One is called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It was written by a man called Alfred Edersheim. I highly recommend it. Alfred Edersheim was a, a led to Christ by a Church of Scotland missionary called John Duncan. John Duncan knew more Hebrew and the cognate languages than any other Gentile in the world. He spent the next 35 years after he start, stopped being a missionary in Budapest. That's where he led Edersheim to Christ, teaching Hebrew at the Free Church College in Edinburgh. Till the day he died, and this is very, very sad, it's sadder than Bonar, to the day he died, he wasn't sure that he was born again. You know why? Because his vision of what a born-again man ought to be was so high that he knew that he couldn't live up to it. So, I mean, even the greats can be dragged down by these invidious comparisons. Don't do it. Don't drown in regret. Instead, do what you can do. Follow Jesus. Find one person who doesn't know Jesus and tell them about Jesus or who believes in Jesus but doesn't know much about Jesus and teach them more about Jesus. And get close to him. Get close to him. This is going to sound like I believe it's all up to men. I don't. I emphasize sovereignty, but I think what I'm about to say is true. We're as close to Jesus as we choose to be. Make the right choices, Christian. It's a new year. Amen.